This is Eric Luton, pastor of the church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. The ministry of Ellerslie endeavors to once again see triumphant Christianity stride upon the stage of time, to see the church of Jesus Christ built strong to stand immovable in these times of sinking sand. We hope this podcast is an encouragement to your soul. If you would like to stream live or visit us in person, or even support us financially, please go to ellerslie.com to learn. So this is a <clears throat> reminder message, one of those messages that you can hear and you can become dull uh, in your understanding of this. And so even as I share this, there's nothing really new about this message. This is just like classic Christian message. I mean, you could almost say that up front. I like to be novel and unusual, so it sometimes can be hard. I have to deliberately choose, okay, I'm going to give a message that's going to sound like, okay, we've all heard that before. At the same time, some of those are the most important messages. It's sort of like when you're watching a football game and someone's holding up John 3.16, and you're like, yeah, heard that, know that scripture, next. Well, have you meditated upon John 3.16 lately? It's actually rather profound. And so we can take sometimes the things that we become familiar with and we can lose their beauty because they're almost too familiar. So I want us to set ourselves in such a disposition, in such a countenance as to be little children hearing something as if for the first time, understanding something as if we've never had the thought before. And then I want us to think, if we were children hearing this, what would our conclusion be? And oftentimes, when you remove all those years of maturity in your life that have sort of calcified you a little and made you a little stiff, and you just think, what would a child think if they heard this? It actually transforms your actions because a child's is sometimes closer to the clear understanding of what you should do in response to something than where we are as adults because we have so many excuses that we've built up over the years. The foreman's key, that'll make sense to you as we progress. Psalm 107.16, I'm just going to start with two scriptures that are going to show the extraordinary breakthrough of what the cross is going to accomplish. So these are in the Old Testament in the book of Psalms, Psalm 107.16, for he has broken the gates of bronze and cut the bars of iron in two. So there's this gate that is going to be discussed that is made of iron and it's an impassable gate but we know that this messiah has come and broken through it why why, why would he do that so that we could get through you could say it this way so we could get out of the judgment that is coming and we could escape it but also so that we could enter in and the same thing is going to be true when you see that uh, curtain in the temple of god is going to be torn in two you're going to see two things. You're going to see an entry for us that we can actually enter into the Holy of Holies. It's an invitation for us to come where God is, but it's also the ability for God to come out of just that Holy of Holies and now enter into us and make us his new dwelling place. And that is an extraordinary reality. Psalm 118, 17 through 22. I shall not die, but live and declare the works of the Lord. The Lord has chastened me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Open to me the gates of righteousness. I will go through them and I will praise the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord through which the righteous shall enter. 
I will praise you, for you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. It's talking about the Messiah, and it's talking about this gate of the Lord that is going to be opened through the Messiah's work. So the impassable gate, again, is going to be broken open. It's going to be made accessible for us. And of course, that's the gospel. So we're going to go back in time to 1911, March 25th, 4.40 p.m. We actually know the exact time in 1911. Sort of an odd story for Eric to pick, but it's the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory Fire. Now, I did look up at one point in time what a shirtwaist was, and I can't actually remember what it was. I'm not that good with stuff like that. It just sounds like something weird. I keep wanting to call it a t-shirt factory because triangle shirtwaist just sounds like t-shirt, right? And who knows, maybe that's where the term t-shirt came from, but I don't think so. Uh, however, this is an, a huge event in American history, even though some of us are totally unaware of it. So here's the picture of the Ash Building, and the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory is going to be, I think it's because it's a triangular building, but you can see near the top these blacked out windows because that's where the fire is going to be on floor 8, 9, and 10. So it's the memorable fire. Let me just give you a description of it. The 8th, 9th, and 10th floors of the 10-story Ash Building in New York City are aflame, and there are 500 workers stuck up there. 146 workers died in the blaze, and still to this day, this tragic event is deemed the deadliest fire in the history of New York City and one of the deadliest fires in U.S. history. So this is where most of our fire safety code is going to come from, you know, crash bars and everything, that, you know, how, how you get out of a building, because there's serious problems in this building. So a tragedy of epic proportions. The doors were locked from the eighth floor. Could you imagine you can't get down out of the eighth floor. Why? Because the doors are locked. You know why they would do that? Lest these workers sneak out and don't finish their job or leave early. So you would lock the doors to make sure that the job was getting done. And so the foreman had a key. And the key was used to make sure that the workers are getting their job done. When the job is done, well, then they'll let you out. It's just, you know, good practice for making sure we get everything accomplished here. No alarm warning for the ninth floor. Could you imagine that you don't even know on the ninth floor that there's a fire? There was no stairwell from the ninth floor, only a rickety broken escape ladder out the window. The firemen could only reach the seventh floor with their ladders. That's helpful. The firemen's life nets used to catch the jumping victim snapped and proved useless. So when people would jump, the fire nets were old and they would just snap. And so they didn't actually work. The foreman, the only man with a key to unlock the doors, quickly left the building when the fire started and saved himself. Now, I don't know what your opinion of this foreman is, but it probably isn't very high. So there's the, the eighth floor. You can just sort of see the, the break from the seventh up to the top. Four factors that I want us to personalize in this message. So why I would talk about a fire in a triangular building known as the Ash Building in 1911, yeah, I, I recognize the question marks, uh, but there are certain applications that are rather profound for us. The escape door is locked in the Ash Building. The ladders we can build will only reach the seventh floor. The life nets we can build cannot sustain the impact of a jump from the eighth floor. As the foreman, we have the lone key. So you recognize that there's a problem. There is something that is threatening the life of 500 people. And 
yet we, if we are going to be the foreman in this story, uh, first of all, that in and of itself is enough application we could just stop right there. You have a key that could unlock 500 lives from a burning blaze. However, if you were to use that key, you could get really close to that flame. And who knows, you could die too. So let's go through each one of these. Number one, the escape door is locked in the ash building. So that's a great biblical principle. That's actually, I feel like I'm reading the Bible right there. First of all, don't you think it's interesting that it's called the ash building? Uh, I mean, for those of you that love puns, uh, that's a very intriguing one. I'm sure it's been used many times over the years. Psalm 14:3, they all have turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There is none who does good, no, not one. You see, to be able to escape the fire that is to come in our life, there is a need for something. You could call it goodness. That isn't the typical term that's going to be used, but good is derived from the word God. So godness, it's God behavior. So there is none that has God behavior. No, not one. You see, to enter into the presence of God, there needs to be a godness, a goodness about you. The typical word we're going to use in the scriptures is righteousness. You must be righteous. Or as God is, is the way we ought to be. So righteousness, that's what we ought to be. We were created in a very specific pattern, and we are supposed to, according to that pattern, produce very specific fruits that showcase the invisible realm. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. It's godness. It's a godliness. It's a God behavior. Or righteousness is another way of saying it, which means this is what God stipulates, and we match it. So when we match up against God's law, you know, it's like this perfect fit, this green light goes ding, and we match. We are righteous. Romans 3, 10 through 12, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They all have turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. So we see a direct quote from the Old Testament there in Romans. In Isaiah 53, 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So we see in the gospel an answer to a problem, and that is that the door to the, uh, what, what was it, the eighth floor of the ash building is locked, and we don't have a key. The key is somewhere else, and we don't have it. Imagine if you're one of the 500 people. And, I mean, what a terrifying thing that would be to recognize. It's like, we're locked in. We can't get out. And technically, that's actually what God wants us all to realize right now. However, the good news is going to pass on additional information where Jesus is going to say, I am the key. And anyone who comes to me is going to get out of this ash building. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. For every single one of us, the door is locked at the eighth floor. There is no escape, guys. Outside of that key, there is no way out. Job 14.4, who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? No one. So the moment that we are defined as unclean, you set the law against our life, and if we fail in even the slightest bit, we are unclean. And who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean thing? Because unless you can get clean, there's no hope for you. The door in the ash building on the eighth floor is locked. And do you have the key? I don't, I don't have it. 
You see, the key isn't in our possession naturally. It needs to be given to us from another realm. Number two, the ladders we can build will only reach the seventh floor. So uh, what a frustrating thing that is. Could you imagine how awkward that would have been to bring out your equipment that you had designed? You know, this is high-tech times. This is, you know, right about the start of World War I where the technological age is about to explode. And we have things like fire trucks. I mean, how cool is that? And so you bring your fire truck down the street. It was probably horse-drawn. But, you know, hey, you know, we're getting closer all the time. However, your ladder, which was one of the coolest things to invent, is a ladder to help in a fire, only reaches the seventh floor, and you have a 10-floor building. And so, and guess where the fire is? Floor 8, 9, and 10. Doesn't that sound like our works of righteousness, our attempts to you know, accomplish something that could get us out of this building? And our best attempts can't even reach the bottom level. Psalm 127.1, this is a unique application of this scripture. Unless the Lord builds uh, the ladder, <laughs> builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. We do not have a solution. Our own efforts are paltry. They will fail. Number three, the life nets we can build cannot sustain the impact of a jump from the eighth floor. Psalm 33, 16 through 19. No king is saved by the multitude of an army. A mighty man is not delivered by great strength. A horse is a vain hope for safety. Neither shall it deliver by any of its great strength. All the things that man can invent to try and solve the problems on the eighth, ninth, and tenth floor of the ash building are going to be shown as futile. And this is a picture of our very life. That no matter what we construct, if we construct a ladder, if we hold out a, 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 a net and we say, oh, we have nets and it can catch you. Our nets will fail. Our ladders will not reach. We do not have the capacity in and of ourselves to solve the dilemma. Listen to what it says. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his mercy to, live, to deliver their soul from death. How does God deliver from death? It's those who actually put their hope in him. Hope in his mercy. If we turn and put our confidence in him, something changes in this storyline. Psalm 21, 31. The horse is prepared for the day of battle, but deliverance is of the Lord. You can prepare your ladders. You can build your nets. However, those nets will be insufficient and those ladders will be inconsequential. The problem we are facing here in the Ash Building is greater than what man can handle in 1911. The problem we are facing in our life is greater than we can handle, and I don't care what year you put on it. We are insufficient to the task to overcome our problem. There's a burning building, and we're stuck in it, which is, of course, why we are here in this room, is because we have been notified, we have been informed, we have been given a key. That foreman's key, if we could describe it that way for us, was supplied to us, and we have escaped the burning building. Now, Imagine that you made it down through the burning building and you were just like, you know, you're coughing a little because you got some smoke in your lungs and you hear the screams upstairs. I mean, I can't even imagine what this would have been like to be on the street during this situation because the windows are busted out. All you hear is screams. And imagine that you had a key, but you're on the bottom level and the thought of going back up when you've been spared from that, that's a, that's a challenging thought, guys. I've often described Christianity this way. We start over here, and God wants to bring us over here. This is death. This is life. 
This is Adam. So we are under condemnation. It's a just condemnation. We are a descendant of Adam. But God, when we believe in Jesus Christ, we are born again. And we are grafted into a new lineage. And now we are of Christ. So when we are over here in Adam, we are like in a prison camp. And we are abused and we are tortured by the powers of sin and the devil. It's misery. And we're crying out, Lord, what must I do to be saved? And then we finally unlock this passageway, this thoroughfare out. It's like the eighth floor door is unlocked for us. And we escape and we run for our life. And then we end up here, free, able to see, maybe coughing a little because we're recovering and we're being rebuilt. We're being transformed. But we're also given new ears. And whereas your instinct in Adam is to self-preserve, it's to think of yourself. When you move over here, it's like you go from prison camp to boot camp. Now, what does God want to teach you in boot camp? Just to be free from the building? Or does he want to tune your ears to hear the screams? Does he want to remind you of the fact that you too were in that building? And does he not want to remind you that in your pocket is a key? And that door is locked to everyone up there. But if, if you have a key that could unlock something for them, what should you do? Remember how I said this is a reminder message? Everything about Christianity is caught in this conundrum, this challenge of being set free from a prison camp and then brought into a boot camp. Most of us just look at this as a Hawaiian vacation that we've been brought into. It's just like, oh, I'm so glad I'm no longer there. But we were brought into a boot camp to be trained to do what? To go back into the prison camp and set captives free because we've been given what they need. We have something that we are called to carry. It's like carrying a key up to the eighth floor in a burning building. It's like, you have got to be kidding. I just got my life spared. I'm now able to live. You know, I was gonna die, but now I'm able to live. Yeah, you can live to save others. Ah! Our propensity is to live for our own benefit as opposed to live for the benefit of others. I don't want to go back here. Well, you're not going to go back there as a prisoner. You're going to go back there as a hero. You are called as a missionary to deliver the goods of the gospel, or in this case, the foreman's key, into a lock to help people be delivered from a burning building. Number four, as the foreman, oh, we have the lone key. You know, it's oftentimes easier if you just think, oh, I'm sure there's a lot of ways into heaven. There's a lot of ways to encounter Christ and salvation. We don't need to think that what I have is the only way. You see, as a believer, this is why it's important, because the mishmash of this world will try and convolute the importance of what we carry. That we have in our possession something so valuable, something so critical and something so important. What are you going to do with the key that set you free? God gave you something. He handed you a key. You put it in a lock, and suddenly the gate that had barred you broke open. And then you ran for your life. You're free. What are you going to do with that freedom? You have a choice in that freedom to live for yourself or to actually remember that you were received a key, that you received something that you didn't deserve. And likely it was someone who was risking their life to go into that same burning building to help you. 
what are you going to do now? John 14, 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This is the only key is what he's saying. John 10, 9, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. Acts 4, 12, nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men which, by which we must be saved. There's only one name. There's only one key to open this gate. The foreman in, there should be a the, if you guys like uh, better sounding grammar, it would probably uh, read a little better. The foreman in the Ash building. Here's a good question for us. Was he a wicked man or just kind of like us? That's a hard one to answer too. If I, if I didn't even put that last part in, was he a wicked man? I'd say probably both. <laughs> most of us would really struggle with the answer because you know the parallel in this story. That's us. So you're not going to call him a wicked man. I'm sure he didn't know. Maybe he didn't know that when he ran out of the building that others may die. Maybe, maybe he wasn't thinking it through. Maybe he didn't know that he had the key in his pocket. Maybe he's like, oh, I'm sure that the door will burn down and they'll all escape. I'm sure there's something. What is it that causes us to behave the same way? Is it wickedness? The Bible's going to call it selfishness. If you guys have ever heard my, that one video, Depraved Indifference, but it's going to describe the exact same condition. You know that depraved indifference is a legal like crime. It's a crime of murder. It's a charge of murder against an individual. And this is how it could happen. You could be sitting on a park bench. There's a park and there's a lake and there's some you know, ducks on the lake. And someone is in the water and you know, they, they, they start you know, drowning. And they're coughing up and they're, they're crying out for help. And if you do nothing and you do not exert yourself to assist them in some way, that you are participating in something known as depraved indifference, and it's a charge of murder. You could have actually helped someone, but you did nothing. So you were depraved in your indifference. You were indifferent to it. I don't care, it's not my life. I don't know who that is. Isn't that a weird thought to think in our country that we actually have a charge for that? And yet, if you have a key, and you know that that key would help unlock the eighth floor and you do nothing and you have a creative justification for it. I know we do because we all sort of go through the same gymnastic routine in our own brain all the time. But is that anything different than sitting on a park bench and seeing someone drown right in front of you? Because you know that you have a key and you know that that one key is the only key that will unlock that door. So therefore, what is the responsibility associated with that key? What are workers on the eighth floor of the Ash Building saying? So here's some workers on the eighth floor of the Ash Building. Now, these really weren't workers on the eighth floor of the Ash Building. This is just historic. I'm going to take two quotes from two atheists. And so this first one is Charles Peace, who is, I want to say that he was being uh, hung. I think he was being hung with a noose around his neck and some priest comes up to him as reading him some scriptures. And this is what Charles Peace, ironic name uh, that he has there, uh, but th he's a thief and a murderer. And this is what he says in response. Sir, if I believed what you in the church of God say that you believe, even if England were covered with broken glass from coast to coast, I would walk over it, if need be, on hands and knees and think it worthwhile living just to save one soul from an eternal hell like that. 
If I believed this, then I would go over, you know, crush glass on my hands and knees all across England to just share it with one person. If I believed it. He didn't believe it. But we do. What lesson do we learn from Charles Peace? Do we have the same sense of gravity? Of knowing something and having the potential position to influence the outcome of people's eternity and yet do nothing. So here's another one. This is Penn Gillette. He's a modern guy. So uh, he's some kind of magician in Las Vegas, if you guys know who I'm talking about there. This is what he said. I've always said I don't respect people who don't proselytize or share their faith. I don't respect that at all. Now, this guy's an atheist, remember? If you believe there is a heaven and hell and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life or whatever, and you think it's not really worth telling them because it would make it socially awkward, how much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize or to share your faith? How much do you have to hate someone to believe everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? If I believed beyond a shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe it, that, 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 that a track was bearing down on you, there's a certain point that I tackle you, and this is more important than that. Now that, Charles Peace has given us a little lecture, guys, from the eighth floor of the Ash Building, and then Penn Jillette pops his head into our life and gives us that little speech. It's like, hey guys, shut up, you don't even believe in Jesus. You don't know what you're talking about. Or do they? They don't believe it, but they're saying, if I believed what you believe, and if that was true, then it would totally transform the way I would live. That's how an atheist would look at this. And you can only, I mean, the way he's phrasing that is somewhat offensive to us. How much do you have to hate someone? Well, I don't hate them. How much do you have to hate someone to not tell them that a truck is about to hit them and just let them get hit by a truck? I, I don't like how you're saying that, Penn Jillette. I don't like how you're saying I hate them. I don't hate them. That's his perspective. His perspective is you must hate them to allow them to be hit by a truck and to do nothing to intervene. Remember how I said at the beginning, this is just classic Christian message, it's been given many, many times. Why is it that a message like this can be shared and shared and shared over generations and we still have a tendency to do nothing? Isn't that just an interesting statement or an assessment of the way we are functioning as the American church today? So. We know what maybe the, those on the eighth floor of the Ash Building are saying. You know, we just heard some of them. It's like, hey, do you hate me? Why are you doing nothing to rescue me? If you really believe, if you have the key, why don't you use it? Why don't you help us get out of this situation? And what are we saying? I, I don't have a list of all our excuses or the different things we come up with. I just want us to freshly assess the fact that we do have excuses. Like right now, messages like this, I'm just going to be honest with you, are not enjoyable. We don't like them. And some of you are a little offended by me, even bringing it up. It's like, Eric, I've heard this message before. And it's just like banging someone over the head with the Bible type of message. I'm a nice guy. I'm the golden retriever in the body of Christ. You know, my tail's always wagging, and I want you to feel encouraged. And condemnation doesn't help us. It really doesn't. 
And so I'm not interested in dishing out a whole bunch of just weight upon your shoulders and having you feel guilty about the fact that people have died in the ash building and you're holding a key and you're on the bottom level staring up, listening to screams. It's like, that doesn't help us. What we need is something beyond us. I think if we were to listen to what we say, we wouldn't buy it either. If we were to write down all our thoughts in regards to all these things, and then we were to set them before the throne of grace and say, God, what do you think of my thoughts on this? We would agree, even before we set it before his bright searchlight, that they're dumb. They're bad reasons. I'm busy. I, I have a lot on my plate right now. One day in the future, yeah, God, maybe I'll have the time to actually consider people's souls as valuable. And, you know, God, there's reasons why I feel awkward. Every time I've ever tried to share the gospel, I feel like it goes terribly wrong. And I never have the right words. I have the words when I'm at home standing in front of the mirror going, and so, you know, <laughs> but then when I get in front of someone, it's just, it all jumbles and I, I, I don't say it right. And so I, I finally realize there's some people that should be going up to the eighth floor with their key and unlocking. I'm not gifted for that. So we have our list, but if we were to be honest with our list, it's rather pathetic. Our reasons are not really good. At the same time, we can all sort of commiserate with each other. In a room like this, there's probably around three of you, yeah, about that, statistically speaking, that love to share Jesus everywhere you go. And you sort of get mad at the other people that don't have the guts to do what you do. Because it's like, hey, this isn't that hard. And I don't know if those three people just are missing that one screw socially in their life where they don't recognize that that isn't what you do. You don't just come up to someone on the street and interrupt their day and make them upset, right? That's not socially acceptable. And, and yet all three of those, all of us in here, when we look at those three, wish we had whatever that is. Even if it's a screw loose, we're sort of like, God, could you loosen that screw in me? We're a little scared about praying that one too. We're like, God, not too loose. <laughs> but what I want you to know is this is not a personality thing. Sometimes it can start that way and there are certain personalities that are very gregarious and outward and it's easier for them to engage. That's true. But for every one of us, it is hard. And we need something from another realm, just like we do to initially get out off the eighth floor. We can't do this, guys. So if you're looking, you get off the eighth floor supernaturally because Jesus Christ is going to give up his life for you. Well, you know how you give the life of Jesus Christ? With the same supernatural element helping you. So what we have a tendency to do when we hear this classic message is we dig in our own pockets and we're like, God, but I am, all I have is lint. I don't have the ability to do this. I feel weak. I feel like a coward. And I would say, all right, that's good. That's good. Let's circle that. And let's say, okay, here's where we're at. We're a bunch of cowards. We're a bunch of selfish individuals that really want to run away from this building. We got smoke in our lungs from that building. We really don't want to be near it anymore. God, I was traumatized on that eighth floor. I'm really not interested in going back to it. All right, let's get honest about these things. Let's get it out on the table. And then let's assess the fact that, okay, what are we here for? Why were we set free? Were we set free so that we could live the American dream? 
Were we set free so that we could be wealthy, powerful, popular? Were we set free so that we could live a life of comfort and ease? Boy, we really want to answer yes to those things because it's instinctive humanity. But when we put on our Christian hat and we think with our biblical lenses on, we know the answer to this. We were set free so that we can give up our life to Jesus, so that he can use us and he can spend us as he sees fit. And if we are honest in our soul about that, then when we match what we got out on the table, like, God, I'm a coward, but I know you want to use me even if I'm a coward. God, I have serious impediments. I don't know how to speak the gospel. I don't know how to say it in a way that's even intelligent, but I know you want to use me as your instrument. Just get it all out onto the table. You need both sides of it. It's okay to acknowledge your weakness. That's the strength of heaven right there. If you acknowledge your weakness, he can use you. If you try and cover it over with excuses like, well, I'm not just built for that. This is not my personality type. Oh, that's not my gifting in the body. God can't use that. Those are excuses. But if you would lay out your weakness and say, God, I'm really struggling in this area, but I know you've given me a calling. And when you begin to combine those together, you're going to come to a conclusion. He has given you a calling and he will give you something from another realm to enable you to fulfill that calling. Now the question is, do you want that? Do you want that something from another realm which would help you fulfill that calling? Which means you would actually start going back into that, 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 that building with your key and get close to the flames again because that's where those souls are. So what is the word of God saying? Mark 16, 15, and he said unto Eric Ludi, whoa, how did I get into this story? Have you ever stuck your name in there? When you stick your name in, it gets a little uncomfortable. It's one thing when you're like, oh yeah, back in those days, that was a cultural issue when he was talking to them. But if you allow the Spirit of God to stick your name in, so if you would like to, and I would like to invite you to do this, since I know your name is not Eric Ludi, I know there's at least one other Eric Ludi uh, in the United States, which is really weird, and I feel bad for the guy. You know, imagine Googling yourself and getting me all over the place. However, I was in an Avis uh, rental car uh, in Maryland, and no, I, maybe it wasn't Maryland. This is, uh, it was, I was in an Avis rental car. I don't know where it was. Uh, and, and I said, uh, yeah, my name is uh, Eric Ludi. Uh, which one are you, the one from Colorado or the one from Maryland? And there's some imposter out there named Eric Ludi lugging around my name. Isn't that just weird? Okay. So could you imagine he hears this message and it's like he deeply cuts them to the heart because it's like his name is actually in there. I want you guys to stick your name in there since I'm pretty confident that that Eric Ludi, is that Eric Ludi in here right now? No. Okay. So that means you need to replace that name. And he said unto Eric Ludi, go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Well, I mean, that's a little too specific, God. I mean, isn't that just sort of, that's a general thing. I mean, I didn't see my name in there. What's it doing up on the screen? You see, when we personalize it, it gives a greater gravity to it. Matthew 28, 19, go ye therefore, Eric Ludi, and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Luke 14, 23, and the Lord said unto Eric Ludi, Go out into the highways and hedges and compel them to come in, that my house may be filled. John 20, 21, as my father has sent me, even so I send you, Eric Ludi. Nope. 
I mean, I was, in, I was already in this like torture chamber here. I was on the eighth floor of the Ash Building and I was set free. And now I just sort of have a vision. I have, I have some dreams and some ambitions of how I'd like to live my life. And it doesn't include going down in a burning building. I mean, this is an inconvenience. This is not what I saw for my future. Well, your future was to die on the eighth, ninth, or 10th floor of the Ash Building. You've been set free and given a new beginning. When I was in college at the end of my, well, I think it was in my sophomore year. It was my freshman year. It was my sophomore year. So I'm in my sophomore year, and it's, I, my sister had given me a book uh, to read, and it changed my life, and I gave my life to Jesus. It was the book No Compromise about Keith Green. And so later that year, I remember praying, God, if you have something for my life that, and I don't know what it is, show me. And I want to do that because I'd never laid my future in his hands. And I remember I was in a, I was on my uh, way home from college over Christmas break. And we, Bob, my roommate and I were driving through a blizzard and we knew that the blizzard had already started before we started on the trip, but it was only going to get worse and when you're in college, you just want to get home. You want good home cooking. You want to be back with your family. You don't want to be in your dorm room on Christmas. No way. And so Bob and I, we head out anyways, even though it's a blizzard. And we're driving through the night. I just finished my shift of driving. Then I got into the passenger seat, and I was going to try and sleep. And the plow uh, for the county had turned around. So it plowed up to a certain point, and we hit a snow drift of about three feet going 75 miles an hour. You could talk to Bob someday about why he was going 75 miles an hour in a blizzard. And we lost control. I still remember popping my eyes open and we were sliding and we slid just on black ice off the side of the road and went airborne and rolled down a hill. And I remember having the thought, isn't my life supposed to pass in front of my eyes when I die? That was my thought. That's a, what a weird thought to have. And I'm like, my life is not passing in front of my eyes. You know, that type of a thought. It's like, what a wasted thought that is. <laughs> and obviously I survived it, if you're wondering uh, how that, that came out. But wow, I still remember the policeman uh, later that day actually saying, who was sitting here? My entire side was smashed down to, it would have been about down to my waist, smashed. And he said, who was sitting here? He goes, you should be dead. There's our story right there, guys. We should be dead. Now I'm not dead. I have a, a, a season of life. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go on the mission field. I'm going to go up to that eighth floor of the Ash Building. I mean, I have a, a, a new lease on life. I recognize I'm living on his time, not on my time. This is no longer my life. This is his life. Sometimes we need to be jarred loose from our selfish stupor. There are always two. The church that goes silent and the church that confesses. There's two ways of approaching a world out there. Church that goes silent, church that confesses. You know, in every closed country right now, every country that persecutes Christianity, there are two kinds of Christians. There are those that are quiet about their faith, and there are those that cannot stay silent. You study this throughout Christian history, you're always going to have in every situation, like you study Nazi Germany, and you're going to see that almost all of the church goes silent towards Hitler. And there's going to be this little band known as the Confessing Church, is actually what they were called. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was one of them. That are going to say, we cannot remain silent. 
You look at the underground church in China and you have the three self church, which is sort of placates the government and sort of plays the, the, the game to get the approval. And then you have the house church movement, which refuses to get government sanction, ends up in prison, is willing to keep speaking the truth because they cannot help it. Jesus Christ gave everything for them. The least they could do is give everything to him. Flesh, spirit, old man, new man. We have a bent towards the old. We have a bent towards the justification of why we shouldn't open our mouth. I mean, there's a lot of good arguments of why we shouldn't open our mouth, guys. You could end up in prison. You could be killed. You could be removed from your family. Your family could suffer. There's a lot of good reasons that you could come up with. And yet over here is the movement of this Holy Spirit in and through our life. And have you ever wondered when you read the Bible, it's like God doesn't seem to care as much about my comfort and my protection and all these things that I'm thinking he should be. Like I sh you know, he should be interested in my paycheck, you know, how big it is, you know, big my bank account is, because that's just, isn't, doesn't God just do that? He will care for you. There's no doubt about it. But he also will spend you. Remember the father and how he handled his son? He is going to express his love in and through his son. And now you are a son or daughter of the king of kings. And he will express his love to those on the 8th, ninth, and 10th floor of the Ash Building in and through us. And that's his pattern. And it's because he loves us that he will use us that way. It's not that he didn't love his son. He loves his son. But his son is also yielding, saying, Father, not my will but thine. The confessing church. We could call it the church that does something. Do you remember, Jesus will always divide things in twos as well. Remember, uh, he has goats and then sheep. There are tares and there are wheat. You're going to see virgins with, with uh, a lamp that is empty and virgins with a lamp that is full. And I guarantee you, there isn't one of us in here that wants to be on this side of the ledger and to be the tare, to be the goat, or to be the virgin with an empty oil lamp. There isn't any of us that desires that, and yet that's precisely what a message like this begs. It says, is your lamp full? It says, are you a goat or are you a sheep right now? Because the sheep, if you remember the story of Matthew 25, the sheep are going to do something when they see the need. When they hear about the eighth floor and that it's locked, the sheep do something. The goats don't do something. The whole difference is one does and one doesn't. What's the difference between a tare and a wheat? Wheat bears fruit. Tares act like wheat, look like wheat, but have no fruit. So here's just a whole bunch of scriptures on this. And when he, speaking of Jesus, had called his 12 disciples to him, he gave them power over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease. It's Matthew 10.1. These 12 Jesus sent out, Matthew 10, 5. Jesus said to them, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Therefore be wise as serpents and harmless as doves, but be aware of men, for they will deliver you up to councils and scourge you in their synagogues, Matthew 10, 16 through 17. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but he who endures to the end will be saved, Matthew 10, 22. Do not fear them, Matthew 10, 26. Whatever I tell you in the dark, speak in the light, and what you hear in the ear, preach on the housetops, Matthew 10, 27. Do not fear, Matthew 10, 31. Whoever confesses me before men, him I will also confess before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, him I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven, Matthew 10, 32 through 33. 
He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life will lose it. And he who loses his life for my sake will find it. He who receives you receives me. And he who receives me receives him who sent me. Matthew 10, 37 through 40. And whoever gives one of these little ones only a cup of cold water in the name of a disciple, assuredly I say to you, he shall by no means lose his reward. Matthew 10, 42. You see the activation that Jesus is asking of his apostles. To actually do. To not hear alone, but to do. Now, I get it. This is one of those messages that you sort of wish that you don't come to. If you know that this is the message for that Sunday, then you just sort of skip around it. You, you feel a little sick to your stomach that day and you don't come. And there's a reason for that, and that is because many of us have heard this sort of message in our life, and we have been burdened with a very genuine burden and conviction, but we haven't known how to act. We haven't fulfilled or walked that out into an act of doing, which then creates the vulnerability of what we could call a condemnation there. So when this comes back up, guess what? The enemy just pokes at that. Right at the very beginning of this message, the enemy starts poking at it. it says, so, this is you. This is you. You're the foreman. And you abandoned post to spare your own life. The best thing we can do is actually just raise our hand and say, all right, I don't like what the devil's saying, but I'm not going to argue on that one, God. I recognize that I have not performed that which you created me to perform. And I have not done with this freedom that which you have assigned me to do with my freedom. And that isn't to say that none of us have run up to the eighth floor and unlocked that door. That is not to say that, or that we haven't shared the key. That is not to say that. It's just in a general sense, as a church, we are suffering from depraved indifference in a massive way. And I could just use statistics to show that. If the church is functioning in its most basic state of not even great health, but decent health, we multiply. You would at lead at least one person to the Lord each year. I mean, think about that. That's not actually that impressive statistically, right? One, we should double in size every year. Just this group, if we're decently healthy, we should actually be producing that fruit, not just of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, but of new believers. Because we are actively engaged in people's lives and investing in them and setting them and desiring to show them that, that you, there's a key to get out of this burning building. And so the natural repercussions of that in this natural realm is multiplication of the church. What would you say of the church in North America when it shrinks in a year? Because that's what's been happening for quite a long time. We have been declining. How do you decline as a church? That doesn't even make sense to me. It doesn't fit mathematically into the system. And that's why it's important for us to freshly, even though we're a little awkward and a little uncomfortable with messages like this, to embrace it and to say, okay, Lord, this is what I need. I just also need power from on high. I can't do this, and I feel vulnerable to failing yet again. I don't care what your history has been up to this point. What if we were to freshly engage with the truth of God's word as little kids, and we were to say, so little kids, what do you think God's saying? I think we should run up to the eighth floor and share the key. That's what any kid would say in hearing this. And yet we have our 
creative ways of answering that question. And I don't want our creative ways. I want the little kid answer to this one. We want to be the confessing church, but oh, we are so weak, so timid, and so, so American. That's not a compliment, guys. Unfortunately, American Christianity is actually not powerful Christianity. Oh, it's easier, it's, it's comfortable, but it isn't necessarily producing. So I have a definition for American. You guys will like this. It's inclined towards self-comfort, ease, self-satisfaction, self-reward, self-coddling, and letting someone else run into the burning building for us. We send missionaries out to run to the eighth floor for us. It's like, can I support you to go up to the eighth floor? As opposed to being willing to run up to the eighth floor ourselves. And I'm not saying it's bad to support missionaries. All the missionaries in here are like, oh, hey, Eric, take that back. We still need support. However, we can't hire someone else to fulfill the purpose of God in our life. That isn't how it works. We all need to set ourselves in God's hands to say, God, use me. What is holding us back from running into the building? I'm going to give it in very straightforward, clear terms. It's the want of heavenly love. That means the lack of heavenly love. And you see, we have earthly love, like for your brothers and sisters, your parents, if you have children, for your children, there is for your dear friends, there's a certain love that we have. We could call it a lowercase l love, and it's natural. You don't need to be a Christian to have it. But then there is a capital L love that comes from heaven. And it's the love that the Father has for us when he sends forth his Son. It's the love that Jesus is going to demonstrate on the cross. It's the love that the Holy Spirit has working in us, through us, to show us Jesus, show us the Father, and then to show that love to others in this world. And we are living on a very low tank of this. We have this huge tank, but we have a very little amount, and we have this empty light that's like flashing at us. And some of us are stuck on the side of the road, you know, with an empty tank. We ran out of it. Because you have to actively engage in saying, yes, Lord, I want that love. Because what that love does is it leads you to the eighth floor, eighth floor of the ash building. Which is one of the reasons why some of us are running low is because we're actually afraid to have him fill up our tank. Because if I, if I actually love those people up there, okay, stop, right here. We're in the bottom level, and guess who's on that eighth floor screaming out the window? Everyone you love in this world. How does that change your response? If you're a parent and your children are up there, you having any trouble with this message? No, you're saying, where's that key? Hey, where's that key? And you're gonna sprint up there. Why? Because of love. Now, it's interesting when someone's screaming out that window and you don't know them, that's when your excuses start dancing because you don't love them. One of the keys of Christianity is that God gives us his love for those on the eighth floor, ninth floor and tenth floor of the Ash Building. It's inexplicable, guys. It's not a rational love where we're like, well, I have no experience. I, I don't have any knowledge of that person. How could I love them like I do? If any of you have ever received a burden for a people group and you have an inexplicable love for a people group, like some people I've heard, they, they love the Jewish people and they just love Jews. And they, if they see a Jewish person, they want to hang around them. It's like inexplicable. They have a 
sense for someone in Zimbabwe and they want to be around someone in Zimbabwe. They just have a heart for people from Iran. They have a heart for people from, uh, I'm trying to think of another country. It's like I'm running short on, on options here. Uh, from North Korea. Well, there, see, I filled it in just in time. Almost ran out of, out of time. Where they have an inexplicable love because God is preparing them potentially to actually go there and minister. Imagine if God gave you an inexplicable love for those that are dying right now. I know it's very general, but you could say an inexplicable love for those on the 8th, ninth, and 10th floor of the Ash Building that is in your neighborhood. And if you were to receive that love, because you imagine God's holding out the, uh, the gas pump, and he's like, yeah, so I would like to like, get this inside of your tank, and then you would love them the way I love them. We're like, so what comes with that? If, if I say yes to that fuel, then what? Well, then you would care like I care, and you would do what I would do in that situation. Nope. Oh. And that's why we're oftentimes low on our heavenly love, is because we're actually afraid, afraid of what that heavenly love will do for us, will do to us, will cause us to do. It could lead us to a cross like Jesus I mean, it could lead us to a prison cell. It could lead us to burn in the building as we're trying to rescue someone else. It could. You're exactly right. And isn't that why you were set free? I don't want you to reason like an American. How old can you live? How long can you live? How well can you live? How wealthy you can be when you die? I want you to think like a Christian. And a Christian reasons differently. It is the great honor of a believer to be spent by Jesus. Have you ever had it where you have a burden for people and you actually, if you've ever been in a situation where you've been able to rescue someone, I remember one of my classic stories I, I share, I, I have two that always pop into my mind on that topic. One time I was in the airport DIA and we're exiting the train and there's the escalator going up and one, it was one of those concourses where it's only one escalator going up, one escalator going down. And this, everyone was going in the right one, you know, going up. And this one lady, this elderly lady, went and she was trying to get on the one that was going down and she kept getting kicked back by the escalator that was going down. And people are laughing and snickering at her as they're walking by. And I came up to her, put my arm around her and I said, ma'am, just follow me, I'll help you get up. And as we were going up the escalator, she leans in towards me and to sort of whisper at me. She goes, thank you. And I tell you what, guys, that's what I'm on earth for. I mean, when you have those moments, you're like, God, give me another old lady that's trying to go up the escalator. Every time, every time I get off a train, I look for someone going up the, the wrong one. Never has happened, again. It's like, oh, but what that is, is it's the instinct, it's the desire. Once you taste it, you want it. I was waiting for Leslie. She was in one of those boring stores, you know, makeup stores. So I was like, no, I'm not going in there. And so I'm sitting in the car waiting and there's a Qdoba right by it. And so these ladies, these three ladies got out of their car and this lady's talking, she whips her, she's talking with her hands. Her phone goes flying up in the air and it goes funk, down uh, into the parking lot. And all three of the ladies look at each other. Like, <gasps> and so this is like my moment, guys. I pop out of the, the vehicle and you might as well put an S on my chest, guys. <laughs> and I run over, I, it, was, it fell in through a grate in the street, and I picked up the grate as if I had superhuman strength, shoved it off the side, hopped down in, I'm dressed like in a suit coat, you know? And I, I go in, I pick it up, and I hand it to, to her, and the lady's like, and I tell you what, I, that's what I'm here on earth for, right there. 
to risk my suit coat, to risk a stain on it, to do whatever it takes to be ready in that moment to say yes to the eighth floor of the Ash Building. And ironically, when you taste it, you want more of it. And if any of you have ever tasted leading someone to Christ or intervening in their life to the point where you recognize shift and change where someone is set free, you understand why people do it. You understand why God does it because it matches our design. We're actually designed to spend our life so that others could live. We're designed to match the model of Jesus. He's actually the perfect model. This is what we were built to do. To die at the age of 33, if necessary, yes. But to actually give our lives as he gave his. But this love is available, but is this, boy, I'm, I'm, a, I'm having trouble with my grammar in this message. But is this love available to us? That's what it's supposed to say. It's a question. Romans 5.5, 5, the love of God. I should have put a capital on that love. Because this is different than earthly love. The love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit, which is given unto us. So that word for shed abroad, it's a really cool word. So I have a pronunciation guide. It's ech, and then with a clear throat, ech. You're going to speak good uh, Koine Greek. Ech, heo, ech, heo. See? See that? You just, you just learned how to speak Greek. Some of you are like, I hope I don't sound like you. This is what it means. That's shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. To gush forth in great measure. To severely hemorrhage blood as from a spear wound. To burst forth in massive quantity. To dump out in entirety. To break open and spill out. To distribute in great measure. To cascade over due to the vast abundance of substance gushing without restraint into a small vessel. A Niagara waterfall overwhelmingly plunging into a small container. Echeo. You have love from heaven. If you are in Christ, everything you need to solve the dilemma that we are all facing, it's a lack of something. You do not actually lack. You can receive this. If you would allow God to love through you, he desires to do exactly that. 2 Corinthians 5, 10 through 11, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. Isn't that an amazing statement? We persuade men. Why? Because we know the terror of the Lord. We know the, the fire on the eighth, ninth, and 10th floor. We've been there. We understand what is happening there. So we are going to persuade men to use this key to get out. It's okay to acknowledge your need. You mu just mustn't allow the timidity to remain. So yes, we're timid. Yes, we're cowardly. It's okay to acknowledge that. But let's not allow it to remain when we have the love of God shed abroad in our hearts. Eric, uh, this is Eric speaking. Lord, I can't do this. My ladder won't reach. My life net isn't strong enough. I can't find the guts inside me to run into that burning building. Jesus, Eric, will you let me do this in you? Eric, yes, please. I beg for the baptism of love to overcome me. May I have an eternal ache for the souls bound in sin. And may I not be able to ignore these precious ones, forget them, overlook them, or walk by them passively again. You were relentlessly pursued. How did the Holy Spirit go after you? Did he just like try and throw the key up from the bottom level? Ah, he missed it. The Holy Spirit is going to go after you. 
And if you repel him, he's going to go after you. He's going to go after you. And then he's going to go after you. And he's going to go after you and after you and after you. You have been relentlessly pursued. Now you must allow the relentless Savior to love and pursue others through you. We are called to model that same relentless pursuit of our Savior for us to go after the souls of those around us. Even Penn Jillette is saying, how much do you have to hate someone if a truck is about to hit them and you don't shove them out of the way? Of course you would shove them out of the way, wouldn't you? You have been given the ability to shove someone out of the way and save them from being struck by that truck. Why wouldn't you use it? Lord, help us. Because we are vulnerable to allowing someone to get hit by a truck right in front of us and do nothing. Lord, rescue us from that condition. Give us your heavenly love. Move us into action. Remember, you have the foreman's key. The one means by which the 8th, ninth, and 10th floor of the Ash Building can be freed. And a great quote from Ray Comfort uh, to finish. What better guy to talk about than Ray Comfort at an end of a message like this, right? Find a sinner and start practicing. Isn't that great? There's a lot of them out there, guys. <laughs> Father, this is a message that the enemy could try and leverage to condemn us. But Lord, we find our reprieve in your righteousness and your work on the cross, that it's not by our work, but by your work that we are saved. And we thank you for that afresh, but Lord, we desire you to work through us. And we don't want to sit on our thumbs. We won't, don't want to be hearers. We want to be doers of the word. Lord, I ask that you would do a mighty miracle in us and that you would raise us up as the body of Christ, that you would sensitize us, that we would look at this as a watermark in our life, as a threshold in our life uh, to begin to live aggressively in the direction of rescue. Lord, give us those elderly ladies that are trying to go up the escalator today in the wrong way. Give us those people that throw their cell phones into uh, underground uh, storage systems for water. I can't remember what it's called. Through grates. Lord, give us those opportunities to be rescuers, to share the truth, to use the key that we have. Lord, we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. This message was brought to you by the team at Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Listen to our weekend message live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings, or join us for Daily Thunder Monday through Friday at 8.15 a.m. For more information, go to live.ellerslie.com. We invite you to visit us at the beautiful Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado for a day, a week, or an entire season of gospel-centered spiritual training. Learn more at ellerslie.com. Thanks for listening.